Uh, one other thing before we get into First Samuel. I don't know how you feel about all this stuff kind of swirling around. Is North Korea going to drop a bomb on us? Hurricanes, immigration, all this stuff that's kind of swirling. Two words to the church and as a church. Perspective and compassion. That's what we bring to the table. You bring perspective that's rooted in your belief in the sovereignty of God. Uh, uh, From Genesis to Exodus, you turn that one page, that's 400 years. That's longer than our nation has existed. We can't begin to fathom the scope of God's superintendence of the world. Like, we can't. Just the sheer time that God has been overseeing the affairs of humanity. We can't even begin to fathom that. And this one who is sovereign over all things is also our father. And he's intimately concerned with the affairs of humanity. And again, those, trying to hold those two things together is, is mind-blowing. But you have that to offer people. Your hair should never be on fire, ever. If it is, you've, you've kind of lost your voice in the midst of everything else. Your feet firmly grounded in who God is and to keep your eyes fixed. Uh, Psalm 121, we, we look to the mountains. That's where our help comes from. We recognize the one who helps. Like the, Somebody told me earlier, she's like, you're talking like a thinker. That's what I am. There's, there's only two choices. You either die or Jesus comes back. That's the fate for every one of us. And honestly, we don't have a lot to do with either one. Our response is to be ready for whichever one of those things happens. And that, again, that's not to be glib at all. It's just to say it's a recognition of where does our life fit in the grand scheme of what God is doing. It's infinitely valuable because he sent his son to die for us. And yet it's also what we experience here is is so temporary and transitory compared to what God has prepared for us. And so we can stand with some sense, I hope, of perspective and offer that to people. Again, it's not to diminish at all. It's just to recognize our, we don't ride the roller coaster of the latest crisis. We don't do that. We don't put our hope in the latest and the greatest technology or politician or law or program. We don't do that. We recognize that the one who we're serving, again, 400 years at the flip of a page, he's not riding those waves. And we don't need to either. I saw... A two-minute clip on the Weather Channel about the hurricane. And the lady talked about this cone of uncertainty. And in my mind, I'm thinking, your cone of uncertainty is wider than the state of Florida. Like, how can you... I, I don't... My kids can't graduate from third grade if that's what they're bringing to the... This, I have this much uncertainty about my answer. It's 400 miles across. And they had all of these lines. She called them spaghetti plots. Here, it's going to do one of these 21 things. We're not sure which. It's going to go in one of these 21 directions. I don't even understand some of And we don't, that's not what we do. We're not going up and down. You can prepare and you can be aware and all of those things. But you recognize your internal state is not based on. That's what you can bring to people. When their hair's on fire, yours not. Yours, yours isn't. When they say the sky is falling, you get to say, I don't think it is, but even if it is, let me tell you, that's not the end of the story. There's another sky. Perspective and compassion. People are 
they, people get scared and they get frantic and all of those things. And in the midst of that, you get to step in and love them. Both of those things, perspective and compassion, worship fuels both. Worship allows you to get perspective and to step back and recognize you're part of a much larger story and you serve a much larger God. It also fuels you to love other people well. So, again, that would be my word to you. I saw someone in Kroger and they said, is the world coming to an end? I don't, I don't know. If it is, there's, I don't know. there's nothing I can do about it. There's not. We can't. That's not ours. That's not ours. Ours is to be ready. Regardless of what happens. And again, we can offer people an eternal perspective and hopefully some divine compassion uh, for the experiences that they're having. All right, 1 Samuel 20. Last week, Saul's es- so we saw an escalation in Saul's determination to destroy David. Things start off well. Jonathan, Saul's son, David's best, best friend, intercedes. Dad, you cannot kill him. It would be a sin. And Saul, I think, with all... in all uh, sincerity says, okay, I'm not going to do it. He makes an oath. I'm not going to kill David. And because he doesn't deal with his own heart, that's that picture of the rock wall. Remember, we talked about handholds. Because Saul doesn't deal with the jealousy in his own heart, that's the evil desire that he is uh, holding on to. When temptation comes, he gives in again. When David again experiences military success, when David again is honored among people, Saul's response is to try to kill him. He can't withstand the temptation because he hasn't dealt with the root. He hasn't dealt with the jealousy in his own heart. There's handholds in his heart. And until those things are dealt with, Saul will continue uh, to try to destroy David. And that's what we see. Again, David experiences military success. Saul tries to kill him. And then Saul begins to hunt David down. We closed last week with David in Ramah, the town where Samuel lives. And God was physically protecting David from Saul uh, during that time. And so that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well I found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan, you must know this. Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet surely, as the Lord lives, and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Wherever you, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So we'll pause here. So uh, David goes to Jonathan, best position to know what's going on. The last thing David knew was Saul brought him back into his house. Chapter 19, verse 7. David was with Saul as he had been with him before. That's the quote. And then, the, and then Saul tries to kill him again. And so David runs away and Saul begins to hunt him like a fugitive. And so David goes to Jonathan, Saul's son, and says, you've got to tell me what's going on with your dad. And Jonathan says, nothing. He doesn't do anything without telling me. And David says, well, he didn't tell you this because he knows we're so close. And then David uses uh, this swear formula, which for Jonathan made his antennas prick up. Both of them take their relationship with the Lord very seriously. They don't say this kind of thing lightly. And so when David says, as surely as the Lord lives, he's saying, I swear Your dad is trying to do this to me. And so at that point, Jonathan believes him and says, what do you want me to do? And then David proposes this plan. Look, tomorrow's the new moon feast. I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, 
because an annual sacrifice is being made there for the whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. So new moon festival every month. You would have a feast. Sometimes it lasted one day. Sometimes it lasted two. This one lasted two days. And his expectation is David would be there with Saul. And he says, here's the plan. I'm not coming. I'm going to go hide in the field. If your father's okay with it, then we know we're good. If your father gets angry, then we know he wants to harm me. So here's, uh, this part gets a little, a little weird. As for you, so this is David talking to Jonathan. As for you, Jonathan, show kindness to your servant. That's to David. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I don't let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And don't ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So that's a little weird. So what's happening there is, remember, David and Jonathan have entered into a covenant. But that, that relationship, that covenant's never really been tested. It hasn't cost them anything up to this point, And now it's about to. And so both of them are saying that the key word is kindness. And we hear kindness, we think niceness. That's not what it means in the Old Testament. It's a massive word. It's used to describe how God treats his people. Goodness, loyalty, love, all mercy, all of those concepts are rolled up under that umbrella of kindness. Again, it's a, it's a massive word in the Old Testament. Your Bible may tra- translate it loving kindness. Again, the NIV, it's kindness. Sometimes it's mercy. But it's this huge concept rooted in how God treats us. As his children. So it's, it's, it has nothing to do with being nice. And everything to do with being loyal. And being good. And being merciful. And being loving towards someone else. And both David and Jonathan. They want to make sure. So we've entered into this covenant. And up to this point it's been real. And it's been sincere. But it's never been tested. And now it's about to. There's going to be consequences. And so David says to Jonathan. If you think I've done something wrong. You just kill me. Don't sell me out to your dad. And Jonathan's going, what do you, I would, I'd never do that. What are you talking about? Well, how will I know if things go well? And Jonathan says, I swear. There's that language again that he's very uh, hesitant to use. When he uses it, he means it. I swear I will let you know. I will tell you the truth. If, if things are going to go well for you, I'll let you know. If things are not going to go well for you, I'm going to let you know. And now, David, I need you to recommit to showing kindness to me as well. Common practice of the day when someone becomes king is they would slaughter all of their rivals. Jonathan would be a key person as the son of the current king. He would have the bullseye on his back. And so would all of his male descendants. And so what Jonathan says to David is when you're on the throne, I need you to promise that you're going to show mercy and love and goodness towards me and towards my descendants. And you're not going to wipe us out. And so they do. Both of them reaffirm the covenant. It doesn't mean that what they had up to this point wasn't real. 
They just never had to put any weight on it. And now they're having to put some weight on it. It's going to cost both of them, Jonathan first and then David later. Verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow's a new moon feast. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty the day after tomorrow toward evening. Go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you're safe. There's no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, that's the covenant. Remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. This to me, honestly, is a little bit silly, but these guys are still maybe kind of young. It's like a secret signal. Here's how we're going to communicate to each other, but maybe better safe than sorry. They don't know what the circumstances are going to be, so they create this secret code for how they're going to communicate with one another. Verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was again empty. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. So uh, you could become ceremonially unclean very easy. If you touch, like you got stung by a bee, if you touched a camel, then you're out. If you touched something that was unclean, then you became unclean. So Saul assumes that's what happened to David, just in the normal course of living life. And so he wouldn't be able to come to the to the feast the first day, but the second day he gets suspicious. And so he asks Jonathan and Jonathan lies. And that's what it is. It's a lie. And some people have a hard time with that because Jonathan in so many ways is a, is a hero and a model for us. And here he is not telling the truth. And so does that mean it's okay not to lie? Uh, some people, you, two, two major schools of thought. Some is, well, it's not really a sin because sin is rooted in selfishness and nothing Jonathan did there was selfish. He gets nothing out of this except he loses his he loses the opportunity to be the king. That's not necessarily the tack I would take. I would just say he's a person and people sin. He lied. And just because Jonathan lied doesn't somehow give us permission to do the same. There's no indication that the plan that uh, David concocted was inspired by the Lord. It may have been, but we don't see anything. And Jonathan could have said, hey, I don't feel comfortable lying to my dad. Can we come up with another option, another way of doing this? But either way, if God doesn't use sinful people, then we're all out. And we know that he does. So I... I wouldn't lose any sleep over the fact that Jonathan lied. Just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean God is um, condoning it. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What's he done? Jonathan asked his father, but, John, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. So Saul explodes. His anger towards David spills out onto Jonathan. He talks about his mom, and then he tries to kill him. 
He tries to kill him. And you see there Saul's uh, perspective on the kingship. God's not in the mix at all. Saul knows that God has chosen David. He doesn't care. He says, if we can get rid of David, then I can still be the king and I can pass it on to you. Again, there's no sense in Saul that anything about the kingship is tied to anything that the Lord wants. He wants what he wants and he's holding on to power, trying to hold on to power any way he can. You can see really the character of Jonathan come through. He's grieved not because his dad tried to kill him. He's grieved because of the way his dad's treating David. I and mean, that just shows the depth of his love for David and the loyalty that he has to him. That even in that moment, he's thinking of David and not himself. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. This to me is just almost, it's kind of silly. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, is it the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave away gone. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go, into, go in peace, for we've sor- short, excuse me, sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendant and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to his town. It's the last major exchange we see between these two. There's a brief encounter in a couple of chapters, but this is really it. This is the parting. So they do the little secret signal thing. It seems like if the goal is to communicate secretly. You, you kind of blow that when you start kissing and crying in the middle of the field. But that's, that's what they do. That's what they do. And then there's a parting between them that, again, is, is pretty... There's one more really brief exchange, but this is pretty much it uh, for, for them uh, as best friends. It's, it's one of the costs of their commitment to one another is that there, there's no relationship there. Uh, moving forward, I want to spend very much time on this. I do want to mention it before we look at uh, some application. And David are gay, and this is some of the these are some of the places where people are going to tie that back. They're, the way they part, the kissing and the weeping. Jonathan saying he loves David. There's a place when after Jonathan is killed in battle, when David is eulogizing him, he says, "Your love for me is more wonderful than the love of women." And people have, take all of those pieces and put it together and say, "See, there were." Homosexual. And that's, there's nothing. There's nothing in the Bible of it at, at all. Like it's it's so far from what the Bible says. It's arguing or making a case, drawing conclusions from from silence. The word love is the same word that's used. It is used for the love that Michael, his wife, has for him. And it's also used for the word for, for the feeling Saul has for him, and Saul's troops have for him, and. All of Israel and all of Judah have for him. It, it's not a sexual word at all. At all, at all. And then and, and there's a, guys that are saying that are conflating love and, and sex, honestly. And in, in the Bible, we're told to love everyone. And we're told to sleep with just our spouse. And that's defined in the Bible as someone of the opposite gender. And that's all the way back from Genesis 1 and 2. So the idea that Jonathan and... David are gay. It's 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 used, in a, and it's actually a semi-popular um, argument. There's nothing in the Bible to support that one way uh, at all. There's nothing to support it linguistically, theologically, historically. There's nothing there. So moving on. So uh, 
David, primary actor, first ten verses. He's the one driving the action. Then we don't hear anything else from him. Jonathan picks up in verse 11. The rest of the chapter is really about him. It's the longest uh, story that we have concerning Jonathan. We, we see some of him in chapter 14 as a military leader. And then we see something here about him really as a friend. And so I want to spend some time looking at Jonathan's heart and what that, uh, if there's anything we can learn from that. So maybe put yourself in his shoes if you can. He was a crown prince, so from the time he was young, he was groomed to be the king, and that was his, maybe in some, some ways, his rightful inheritance as the oldest son of the sitting king. It, it just would have been a, a given that Jonathan would inherit. There's no indication of ego from him anywhere that we've seen, but that would just have been part of how he would have been raised, as someone saying, that's my destiny, I'm going to be the king. And from what we see of him, it seems like he would have been a really good one. At this point, the king is primarily a military role, not a lot of administrative duties. It's really about leading the people in the battle. That's what they wanted. We want someone who will lead us in battle, and Jonathan was good at that. We see when he's first introduced in 1 Samuel 13, it's leading a group, I think a 1,000 men at that point. We see him in chapter 14, kind of picking a fight with the Philistines, and his victory there opens up a broader victory for Israel. The troops love him. They actually stand up for Jonathan towards, to his dad, to Saul, when Saul uh, tries to unjustly uh, kill Jonathan. And so there's, there's indication there, evidence, that Jonathan had the skills to be a king. And there's also indication and evidence that he had the character to be a king. Uh, he had a deep trust and a deep faith. In the Lord, and you see that again in, in chapter 14, when he, in his armor bearer, pick a fight with about 20 different Philistines, and, and that's what they do. And there's this, you, you see that with him. So we have Jonathan with both the skills and and with the heart to be the king, and he doesn't become the king. And he doesn't become the king because of no, it's no fault of his own. It's because of things his dad did. His dad sinned and is rejected, and his dad sinned, and that rejection leads to the rejection of his sons, Jonathan and, and his descendants. And God moves in another direction and calls David and says, it's from David, I'm going to build a house, which is the family line of David. Jonathan hadn't done anything wrong, and this life that he thought would have been his is, is taken from him in some ways. And you think about his response. There's no indication he gets angry at God. There's no indication he's envious of David. So envy is when I want something someone else has. He's also not jealous. Jealous is when I want to keep something that I have. There's no jealousy in Jonathan. There's no envy in Jonathan. He actually, if you can imagine, he continues to be a good son to Saul. He actually follows his dad in this kind of ill-fated battle at the end of 1 Samuel. leads to his death. He continues to be a, a faithful and a good son, even... In, in, in light of all that his dad has done wrong, including throwing a spear at him. It's a phenomenal response to, I would move beyond disappointing, to probably devastating circumstances. And at some point, for every one of us, it's not going to be just life throws you a curveball. You've all experienced that. This is like a, this is a sharp right turn. This is... The plans that I had, the way that I was going, it gets completely upended. Some people will experience that tonight and tomorrow when a hurricane sweeps through their neighborhood. 
Everything that we were building, everything that we were planning, everything that we were had, it literally just was washed out the door. And that will happen to all of us at some point. And so the question is, what does it look like for us to respond like Jonathan and not like Saul? And Saul's response, it's even worse. It was rooted in his own bad choices. And most of us have enough self-awareness to recognize I blew that relationship or I blew that opportunity. It could be even more difficult when we feel like there are factors beyond our control. We're almost a victim of circumstances in some sense or God or however we want to assign blame. Why did this happen? How do you respond in that moment? How do we respond with a heart like Jonathan that doesn't just get out of David's way, but actually works to promote David and works to move David forward into this life that was Jonathan's by all rights? What does it look like to develop a heart that that can respond with that level of humility and grace in those circumstances? It would be Maybe at some point in your life you've, you've had a friend and in the future y'all thought about, hey, wouldn't it be great if, you know, something with a sports team or a position in a, in a company. And it's easy when all that's theoretical to say, oh, you'd be great at that and I'd support you. And for you to say, oh, you would be great at that and I would support you. And then suddenly when it's time to try out, and there's only one spot left. It becomes a lot more difficult. Or when it's time to interview and only one person is going to get the job, it becomes a lot more difficult to say, I'm going to cheer on and support someone who has something that I maybe felt like was mine or that I really wanted. And and again, we see that response in Jonathan. He's not just a neutral. He doesn't just get out of the way. He's a positive. He spurs David. on. He takes great risk. He's the only one who takes a risk in chapter 20. David's hiding in a field. Jonathan is the one who takes the risk with his dad. And we see that uh, several times with him, that he's the one that really puts his neck on the line to help, move, to help either protect David or move David forward. What does it look like to develop a heart like that? Jonathan has a deep trust in the Lord that results in these acts of uh, courageous faith. He does things for God that's rooted in this deep trust he has in God. We don't necessarily see that develop. When Jonathan comes on the scene, he's a... He's full, his character seems fully formed. In chapter 14, when we see him really for the first time with, with any detail, uh, he and his armor bearer, so it's just the two of them, and Jonathan says, hey, let me, I have an idea. Let's pick a fight with these Philistines, and let's see what God wants to do. There's at least, and the armor bearer says, sure, I'm in. Whatever you want to do, let's do it. And so what Jonathan does is he says, let's give up our primary advantage. Right now, they don't know we're here. So let's call out to them. Let's let them see us. And then let's make sure they retain their primary advantage. They're on a cliff, so they have the high ground. That's where you want to be if you're fighting. So let's give up our only advantage, the fact that we have the element of surprise, and let's make sure that they retain theirs. If they come down, then we're not going to fight them. But if they call us up, then we'll know God has given them into our hands. So you, they don't teach this at West Point. This is bad military tactics. The one thing we have going for us, we're going to let go of, and we're going to make sure they hold on to the thing they have going for them. We bear up, they climb up, and they kill 20 people. And the Bible says 20 people in half an acre. I don't know why it matters, but that's what they say. The, the odds there is 10, 10 to 1. There's at least 20 guys that they kill. It's this great act of this courageous act from Jonathan 
that's spurred in this deep trust he has in the Lord. He says, listen, God's not hindered. He can say whether it's by many or by few. And if the circumstances line up this way, then we'll know God's working on our behalf. It's not going to be because I was a great strategist. It's not going to be because we snuck up on them. It's not going to be because we have superior numbers. It's not going to be because they gave up their advantage. The only way we win is because God gave us the victory, this deep trust that he has in the Lord. And that deep trust, I think, is what allowed him to respond positively when the kingship is taken from him and or taken from his dad, really, and given to David and he's passed over. How do we develop that deep trust? In the Lord that then spurs these courageous acts of faith. I think it's rooted in the goodness of God. There may be some other things, but I think that's fundamental. If you don't believe God is good, you're not going to trust Him. You're just not. You're not going to trust Him if you don't believe He's good. One of the in the Lord's Prayer we read, Jesus tells us to pray, "Your kingdom come." Or excuse me, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. There's this recognition that what I need, God can provide for me. And for many of us, that's true in some areas of life. Most of you I know have been following Jesus for some uh, period of time. And so you say you're, you're trusting God. You recognize his goodness when it comes to your eternal future. But what about your immediate present? Are there, do you believe, not just do you know, but do you believe that God is good? Does that have any impact on the way you're living your life. How do you know? Maybe think through where are the pockets of anxiety for you? What are the things that keep you up at night? First thing you think of when you wake up in the morning. When do you, when do you reach for the Rolades? Like, what are you thinking about them? Maybe an indication that that's an area where you're not believing that God is good. Again, intellectually, you probably know He's good. If you're experiencing anxiety, it's most likely because you're not trusting him. You're not trusting him most likely because you don't believe that he's good. He's not trustworthy in that area. Could be because of past experience. I don't know. But again, that's reality for most of us. So where are you experiencing anxiety? Most likely that's an indication that you don't believe God is good, at least in that one area of your life. Your finances, your future, your children physical safety. I don't know what that may be for you. Some of you say, I don't get stressed. Ask somebody who knows you well, because you do. We all do. Ask someone. You may not feel it, but ask. Just, Just to make sure that there's no areas where maybe that you're carrying um, that you don't need to carry. So what does it look like for you to begin to develop this understanding that God is good if you're not fully convinced? Again, not just in your mind, but in your heart. So it's, not, it's easy to find evidence of the supposed, I guess, lack of God's goodness. That's what sells newspapers. It's not hard to find things that would say God's not You can get as much of that as you want. And so what we want to do is build a counter-argument, for lack of a better word. In the Old Testament, it was rocks. That's what they used. We're going to make a big pile of rocks, and that's going to remind us of what God did. And that's kind of what I want you to do in your own heart and your mind, is create this pile of rocks, this memorial, and to do it two ways. One is personally. 
Where have you seen God's goodness in your own life? Where? If you don't have a good memory, you may just need to start today and move forward. God, show me your goodness in my life. Something I've been praying since the beginning of this year for the, these eight or nine months. God, I, need to, I want to know your goodness. Not just in my head, but in my heart. And it's taken time, and I've only taken baby steps, but it does change things. I don't ride the roller coaster. At really, hardly at all. My, my internal state is not dependent upon external circumstances. It's not because I'm great at all. It's because I'm beginning to understand and that God is good. So I would encourage you, begin to do that. If you have a great memory, maybe you don't need to write it down. Most of us don't. Like start a note or in your journal. These are the times where God has been good to me. What you're doing is you're putting rocks down. You're making a, a memorial. So when you read something or you hear something or you see something that seems to say he's not, you have something on the other hand as well. And the second thing I would encourage you to do beyond your own life is as you read the Bible, read from Genesis 12 to Esther in the Old Testament. That's all, In the table of contents, those are one book after the other. Genesis 12 to Esther, and then Matthew to Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Those are the narrative or the historical sections of the Bible. They tell stories. There's plenty of prayers. There's plenty of psalms. There's plenty of letters that state God is good. Most of that for us stays right here in our head. The stories, you get to see how God is acting in history. And so you can see his goodness played out in the lives of real people over history, over time, regardless of culture, regardless of gender. We get to see that. And for many of us, that maybe plants a little bit deeper in our heart because we can relate to those people more than we can relate to abstract statements. The goal is for you to build a testimony in your own heart, in your own mind, that God is good. And those are the two primary ways, one through the word and then the other through your own Experience, And you have to pay attention. If you ask, he'll tell you. It doesn't do any good if you don't grab it. Doesn't do, it's not going to help you at all. You need to, my encouragement would be to write those things down in some way, shape, or form. And just begin to collect them. And what you'll see over days and weeks and months is he, it's not just he is good, but he is good to me. Your circumstances may not change. And at this point, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is your perspective. Changing, And once you're convinced that God is good, then the next step is to do something about it. Faith demands expression, always. Jonathan acted on his faith. He acted on this belief that God is good. He said, hey, let's pick a fight with the Philistines and see what happens. He goes to his dad and says, you can't, you can't kill David. He makes a covenant with David, gives him his robe and gives him his sword that are signs of the kingship. He said, this is yours. You're going to be the king, not me. And I'm trusting that God has something for me, something else for me. Because it's not to sit on the throne. In the chapter we just read, he engages in this plot with David to see, to sound his father out at great personal cost. All of those things are expressions of his trust in the Lord. He's demonstrating through his acts. He believes God's good. Some of you have heard this story. In the 18, late 1850s up through about 1860, there's a guy, and he was a performer, and his name was Blondin. And he would tightrope walk. That's what he did. And he would tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. That's what he did. And he wouldn't just tightrope walk. He would do all kinds of things. He'd go blind, blindfolded back and forth. He'd cook an egg, uh, walk backwards, all kinds of stuff. 
And people were amazed, and rightfully so. And one day, part of his act was to take a wheelbarrow back, back and forth across this tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he, and he did that. And then he put something in the wheelbarrow, a sack of potatoes or whatever. He took it back and forth. And then there's an audience. And he says to them, do you think I could put a person in this wheelbarrow and take them back and forth? And they're like, absolutely. We know you can. And he says, well, who wants to get in? Nobody wants, to, nobody wants to get in. No. Faith demands God is good. If I'm trusting him deeply, it should have an impact on the way that I live my life and the choices that I make. At some point, I've got to get in the wheelbarrow. Or I don't really believe. I just think. I just think. And that's, that's not what God's looking for. Without faith, Without trust, it's impossible to believe to, to please the Lord. It's not without thinking it's impossible to please the Lord. At some point, we have to take a risk. We have to take a step. You don't have to provoke a foreign army. That's not what you have to do at all. It's, it's not about being reckless at all. It's about recognizing an opportunity and saying, you know what? If God is good, then I can take this step. If he's good, then I can put my weight down upon that. If you're married, your spouse comes home tomorrow, and you put a for sale sign in the yard, say we're moving to Africa, you've missed it. It's not what we're doing. All of you over here, if you come home tomorrow and say, hey, I'm dropping out of school, God told me to, you've missed it. It's not what we're doing. It's not about, it's not... When I, when I say courage, don't hear reckless. Courage is obedience in the face of fear. And so it could be a simple Jonathan going to his dad and interceding for David. That's courageous, especially when your dad's a maniac and may kill you. That's a courageous step. For some of you, a courageous step is choosing to have a conversation with somebody. If God is good, then I can have this talk with them. If God is good, then I can give this hour of my time to give away what God has given me, serving in A, B, or C. If God is good, then I can let go of some of this nest egg that I've been squirreling away for years and years and years. If God is good, then I can get on an airplane and go on the mission trip. Whatever those things are, it, it's, what's it, what is it for you? It's a courageous act for you, not for anyone else. In the face of fear, you say, God is good, and therefore, I'm going to step out. That conviction that God is good is the foundation for a deep trust in him that absolutely will demand an expression. But goodness, understanding his goodness, is a foundation for trusting him deeply, which then, when things don't go well, when you get turned sideways, when you're disappointed or devastated, you've got something to stand on at that point. If you don't have trust, you're not going to react well. And you're not going to have trust if you don't believe he's good. Let's pray. So two things. Pick one. If you're not convinced, not in your brain, but in your heart, that God is good. And again, just do the category, do the catalog of your life. 
go through all the areas that are significant for you? Are you trusting him? Are you trusting him? If you're not, it's most likely because you don't believe he's good. You don't believe he's going to give good gifts. What I would encourage you to do in the next couple of minutes, just begin to ask the Lord, God, you've got to show me. I want to know your goodness, and I pray that you would convince me. Convince me that you're good. Take me back to places in my past where you've been good to me. And you may want to start a note on your phone or begin to jot those things down. You're making a testimony. You're building a memorial. So that when circumstances say he's not good, you've got something to say, well, actually, I've got all this evidence that says he is. You may just want to spend your time there. If you would say, you know what, I'm, I, I get it. I know. I trust. I'm in. God's good. That influences and impacts the way I live my life. There are acts of courage. Is there a place where he's asking you to get into the wheelbarrow? Again, don't think about what... I don't want you thinking grand. I think that's the... That's a fallacy. This isn't something that's postable or gets in the newspaper or makes you famous. <clears throat> something in your own life where you're choosing, maybe you're choosing against fear. That's what courage is. It's not about how you feel. It's about the choice you make. And so you just begin to ask him, God... Is there a place where you, where you would want me to step out? To demonstrate that I believe you're good. That you could make a name for yourself through some small act of obedience on my part. Not to make a name for me, but for you. And see where, where that takes you. See if he brings anything to mind. And then I'll come back up in a minute and close us. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now in these next couple of minutes? Would you encourage us? I pray that every man and woman in this room, we would all be deeply convinced that we have a good Father in heaven.